Good morning, Menlo Church. It is so good to see your faces. I I am so glad to be with you. My name is Cheryl, one of the pastors here at Menlo Church, and we are one church in many locations because we want to be joining God in what he's doing in the Bay Area. And so I want to give greetings to our campuses at San Mateo and Mountain View, Saratoga, and those of you joining us online, it is good to be together. We are in a series where we're talking about Um, Bible passages that maybe we learned as kids, but haven't really questioned as adults, or maybe we have questioned them. Whether you've grown up in the church, uh, maybe uh, you're new to church, maybe you're kind of exploring, you're checking things out, we're so glad that you're with us. Here's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church that it is safe to question. If you're in junior high, you can question. If you're in high school, you can question. If you're an adult, question. Ask questions. You can push back. You can doubt. We want to be a place where it's safe as we look at the scripture, as we consider God, that it's a safe place even to disagree. Because we've been saying this throughout the series, that if we don't grow up in our faith, and growth requires questioning, and it usually includes some doubts, if we don't grow up in our faith, we're likely to lose our faith. And I would add to that, if we don't have an examined faith, if we live with an unexamined faith, my fear is that then we miss out on the one who is actually the object of our faith. We lose out on the intimacy that we're invited to with God. And so we want to be that place where we can question, we can doubt, and it's safe to do so. Let me say this, how we read the Bible matters And so through this series, we've been dropping some resources on you, and we've put them on our webpage, menlo.church slash the rest of the story. And I'm going to add some resources that I think are really important to us as we look at Scripture. One of those resources is the Bible Project. They have a series called How to Read the Bible. They've got a podcast around that, and they've got a video series. It will blow your mind brain. You need to look at that. And then a book that I would recommend, it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and it's an excellent, excellent tool. Today, we are going to look at Genesis chapter 3, and this is a passage that is often referred to as the fall, because it's the first account of what I would call pervasive depravity. It puts sin on display. We don't usually love to talk about sin, but we're going to do so today. Maybe you have the flannel board version of this story. There are sort of naked children eating apples. I thought this was a mushroom. It's a snake. Um, Maybe your vision of God looks like an old white man, nothing against old white men, or Gandalf. Uh, There are trees uh, there. But there is so much more to this story, and that's what we want to look at 
today. So let me pray and we'll dive in. Father, we're um, so thankful that you're here. We're thankful that you're present. We're thankful that you're patient with us. We're thankful that you invite us into relationship with you. And we need you. We need you even to understand who you are. And we need you to help us. And so I would pray that you would enliven the words of the scripture. That they might not just hit our head, but they would hit our hearts. That they wouldn't just hit our hearts, but they would hit our minds and how we think and ultimately how we live. And we need you for that. And so we just say simply, help us. In Jesus' name. Well, as I mentioned, uh, when we read the Bible, it's important how we read it. And so we're going to look at Genesis 3, but anytime we read the Bible, it's important to look at context. Context, context, context. We want to look at what's before it and what comes after it. And so I need to kind of lay out big picture of Genesis 1 and 2 and how that sets up Genesis 3. So what we know from Genesis 1 and 2 is there is God. And God is on display as the creator king. He's the creator king who provides everything that his creation needs to live and to thrive with him and with one another. And just a few of the things that God gives to the humans. These are a few things that God gives to the humans. He gives goodness. It says in Genesis 1, every time something's created and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And the goodness of God in the scripture is synonymous with the glory of God. God's glory is his worth and his value, his beauty and his wonder. And everything that God creates and all that he gives to the humans, it is good. So he gives goodness, he gives identity, there's no question of who they are. They are image bearers. They were created to bear God's image, to look like him and reflect him back to him and to one another. They have purpose. They were also given purpose. They were created to have a job. That came before sin. We all kind of think it came after sin, but um, they were created to have a job, and that job was to do a work of co-ruling with God over creation, tending to creation, subduing it, assuring that it would thrive, that it would flourish. They were made to multiply themselves, to fill the earth with others who bear God's image and reflect him. They were given relationships. The one thing that's not good in those creation accounts is that it was not good. God says it's not good for the humans to be alone. And so he gives them relationships. And I think that transcends not just marriage, but all relationships and community. And then he gives them a place. He gives them a place called Eden, and the word means delight. 
He gives them a delightful place. And what happens in Eden only makes sense if we understand this place as how God originally designed his space for his creation, what he meant for us. And what is in Eden is Eden is a physical reality of heaven and earth overlapping. Eden is, it's, it's described as at the top of a mountain because the rivers flow down and heaven and earth overlap so that in this space, the humans are present. There are spiritual beings, we're gonna talk about that. And it's in this space that they met with God without any barrier. They could hear him, they could see him, they could experience him. That's why Eden is often referred to as the temple. It's a temple space. When Israel built their temple, they built it as a reproduction of the Garden of Eden because that was the space where humans and God would meet, where God would be experienced. That's why when Jesus taught his followers to pray, he said, pray like this. Father, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven because we're made to live in Eden. We're made to help restore Eden here, even now, and it will one day be perfectly restored. But your kingdom, come. What's up there, come down here. This is the place that God made for them. Because God's ultimate goal is for humans to live and to rule the world with him in the heaven and earth place. We are created to do life with God in delighted dependence upon him. We are created to do life with God in delighted dependence upon him. So there is God and there are trees. There are 522,000 Trees, I don't know how many. There were probably millions of trees. There were millions of trees. We know that. There were lots of trees. But two of them are highlighted um, and they are named. And what's important for us as we read this account is that these trees represent choice, right? The humans were not created as puppets. They were not created as robots. They were not created as bots. I don't even know what a bot is. I just said that to try to be cool in Silicon Valley. Um, I don't know. But the humans are created as volitional beings, meaning they were given choice. They were given choice to trust God or to not trust God. They're given choice to move toward God or to move away from God. They're given choice to put their faith in God or to put their faith in something else. And the reality is we will all put our faith in something. We will put our faith in whatever we think will make us secure or significant 
or whatever it is that we're looking for, right? And typically, we'll put our faith in good things, careers. Uh, we'll put our faith in our talents and our gifts, maybe in another relationship. But we were meant to put our ultimate faith in the ultimate one, God himself, right? But we're given choice. We're given choice. So these trees represent choice, and both trees are in the center of the garden. One tree is the tree of life. To eat from it is an act of faith and trust in God. It's to know God, not the tree. The tree isn't magical. It's not a magical tree. It's a tree that God puts for them to take an act of faith and eat from it, to know him to be the divine giver of eternal life. The very first command, I love this, the first command given is a command of abundance and freedom. God says, you are free to eat, and that word to eat is a command word, and it's actually eat, eat. He's saying that it's putting emphasis on it. You are free to eat, eat from any tree of the garden, all the trees, eat, eat, except for one. So the second command is the command not to. The other tree is the tree of knowing good and bad. So you can eat from any tree and you can eat from the tree of life all you want, but do not eat from the tree of knowing good and bad, God says, because if they eat from it, they will surely die. One tree represents eternal life from God and the other represents an acquisition of knowledge that leads to death. So what's that about? an acquisition of knowledge that leads to death. And I personally, I don't believe that God doesn't want the humans to know good and bad. They're gonna need wisdom. They're gonna need to know good and bad if they're going to co-rule with God over creation, right? If they're gonna reflect his goodness and his likeness to one another. Theologian Tim Mackey says this way, he notes that up to this point, God is defining what is good and evil. This is important. God is defining what is good and evil, and the tree now represents a choice, right? And he says it this way, he says, will the humans trust God's definition, or will they seize the opportunity and define good and evil for themselves, Will the humans trust God's definition or will they seize the opportunity and define good and evil for themselves? Well, here's what happens in Genesis 3. We're finally there. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any wild animals, any of the wild animals the Lord had made. Now, People differ on their understanding of this, but I want to suggest this, and we can agree to disagree. But I think that the author here is wanting us to see this serpent and understand this serpent as a spiritual reality beyond just a mythical creature in a fairy tale, a talking snake. 
because he does give us these interesting details. We're told that it's crafty. We're told that it speaks. And most interesting to me is that the word used here for serpent, there are a lot of words for serpent or snake that the author could have chosen from. Um, but the word that he uses is connected to spiritual beings. In the book of Isaiah, much later in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, there are, there's this scene where there are spiritual beings in the throne room of God. And this shows up in other places of scripture where God's throne room, there seems to be a spiritual council with him. And there are these spiritual beings and they are praising him and they are worshiping him. And that the, the word that Isaiah uses is the same word of this serpent in Genesis 3. And it appears that what is happening here is that we have this spiritual being who also had a choice. We have a spiritual being who could choose for or against God. And this particular spiritual being chose against God. This particular spiritual being is a rebel spiritual being. We might think of it as Satan. Uh, in Revelation, it connects this concept of Satan with this particular serpent. But the word Satan, and this is good to know, Satan is not a name. It's not one particular being. Satan, the word Satan actually shows up in the scripture usually as the Satans or the Satan because it's a title or it's a role. It tells us what the rebellious spiritual beings do. The word the Satans means adversary. And the rebel spiritual beings are adversaries. They are not for anything. They are anti-everything. They are anti-God and they are anti-his image bearers. There are other titles for these rebel spiritual beings throughout the scripture. Uh, the title of tempter, evil ones, devils, which means slanderers, and they will tempt, lie, and slander in opposition to God, seeking to destroy God's plan and seeking to destroy God's image bearers, right? So this, I don't think, is just a talking snake. I think it's a rebellious spiritual being. So, now, back to Genesis. Now the, spirit, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's silly. The woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it, which he didn't say, but she added that, or you will die. You're not going to die, hiss, hiss. You're not going to die, the serpent says to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They ate. They ate. But they didn't ask. They ate, but they didn't ask. There is no evidence that God had left the garden. They could have just turned. They just could have turned to God and and asked, is this choice a good one or a bad one? Is this serpent-y thing a good guy or a bad guy? But they had decided on their own. We know what good is. We're going to eat. But they didn't ask. The rebel spiritual being wanted them to join in his rebellion. And it used all the tools of tempting, lying, slandering, calling into question God's goodness, calling into question God's source of the knowledge of their good, of what is good and what is evil. They were afraid they were going to miss out, and so they ate. The rebel spiritual being offered them autonomy, and they grabbed it. Gosh, they ate, but they could have just asked, right? Tim Mackey, again, he says this, The core biblical concept of sin is the desire to call the shots myself. We love that. It's the inward turn of the human heart to do what's good for me and my people, even if it's at the expense of you and your people. Humans are horrible at defining good and evil without God. Humans are horrible at defining good and evil without God. But here's the thing that we sometimes do with sin is that we merely reduce sin to a bunch of rules, right? We, we make a rule, we make a list of things not to do. I've done this. And here's the problem with the list plan with sin, is that it gives us, I think, a false sense of control, but it doesn't transform us. It doesn't change us. If we just create a hierarchy of sins like we do, you know, determining like that's really bad and that's kind of bad and that's everybody does that kind of duh, but it's still bad list. We might find solace in keeping the rules. But I guarantee you, it's going to lead you to judging others and it's going to crush you. It's going to lead you to selfish pride and it's going to destroy you. You see these plans of just making sure you don't do this thing and keep your list. What they do is they form religion, but they keep us from the necessity of the atoning death of Jesus. They actually keep us from the object of our faith. 
They give us this false sense of religiosity that if we can keep this list, then I can have just enough religion, just enough religion. I don't want too much religion, but just enough religion to be okay. Just enough religion to raise some moral kids, right? But God's command is bigger than just keeping the rules. God's command is an invitation into relationship with him to eat, eat, to feast with him, to dine with him. Later, Jesus will say to eat upon him. So here's what happens when they choose autonomy from God over dependence upon him. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And earlier we're told they were naked and they were unashamed. There was no shame. But now they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? I think he knew where he was, just in case you were wondering. But the Lord God calls the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is what sin does. It buries you in fear. It pushes you away from God. You find yourself in shame. You find yourself covering up. You find yourself hiding. So what do we do? I think the temptation right now would just be to go, okay, well, how do I make the right choices? How do I eat from the right tree? But I want to pause and invite us not just to determine to be better, but I want us to be in awe. I want us to be a church that is so in awe of God's grace. His grace that is on display here. You know, we can look at our lists of do's and don'ts and have our little list, and it doesn't really do much to it, but if we stare at the grace of God, we almost can't take it. It's blinding. We don't know what to do with it. We know how to give effort and how to earn, but we do not know how to just receive. So they chose to cover up and move away from God and hide. And what does God do? God comes after them. God chooses to come after them. And that is what God will keep doing throughout history. It's what God will do throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He will keep pursuing. He will keep coming after them from the very first page to the last page. And he's doing it right now. He's doing it right here. He's coming after us. How we read the Bible matters. We do not read the Bible as if it were Aesop's fable. Dropping in on a passage here, a story there that would help us 
We're looking for moral lessons to improve our life. The latest life hack in the Bible. No, we read the Bible as one story. We read the Bible as the story, not of me, not of you, but of God. We read the Bible for the story of God that explains me and glorifies him. Every page is an opportunity to see God's grace for you. The humans decide to define good on their own terms, so they eat and they don't ask God for help. And I would say there are cosmic consequences that continue to mark the human condition. We all carry a pervasive depravity that is bent inward, that chooses self over surrendered dependence to God. The humans hide, but God hunts them down. Grace upon grace upon grace. Because here's my economy. You reject me, I reject you. God's economy, you reject him, and he just comes running at you and keeps running at you and keeps running at you because God offers another tree. God offers another tree. Jesus' friend Peter wrote it this way. God himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By Jesus' wounds, we have been healed. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Romans 5 again. But, Romans but, Romans, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Not when we got our act together, not when we made the right choice, not when we picked from the right tree. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus chose the tree of death so that we could have the tree of life. Jesus chose the tree of death so that we can have, we can receive, we can take, we can be given the tree of life. Oh, Jesus, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that you would bear our sins in your body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus, for the one in the room who believes this message is for everyone else but not for them. Because the lies of that enemy, that adversary are telling them, even right now this morning, they don't know what I've done. They don't know how I think. They don't know my addictions. They don't know my stuff. Oh, God. 
would you reach into that person's mind and heart right now? And not just whisper, but overwhelm them with your love for them. That you have hunted them down. Even when they didn't ask, you came after them. You're coming after them. Would they receive that? We thank you that you are a God of goodness and kindness and grace. Amen.